Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known here on WRIR as DJ Lilas, and you are tuned in to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I'm so excited to be here today with Sky King to discuss the 1995 cult classic, Tank Girl. It's the year 2033. There's no law. No mercy. And no water. The odds of survival are a thousand to one. And that's just the way she likes it. Hi, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here, Cameron. Uh, Post-apocalyptic movies hit different right now. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to ask you in a second why, why you chose this. But for those who don't know Sky King, he's a filmmaker currently based in Richmond, Virginia. He graduated from Virginia Tech in 2020 with a Bachelor's of Arts in film production. And he just finished principal shooting on a TV pilot for The Furry Show that he wrote, produced, directed, and is editing. Is that right? Co- co-wrote and co-directed uh, right. my friend Margot uh, yes. Shout did out the to other half. Yeah. Co-wrote, co-directed, produced, and is editing um, to make a whole TV pilot happen, which I think is really impressive. Um, a video-making machine imbued with the soul of a cartoon fox, Guy strives to collaborate with passionate people on creative endeavors. I can definitely say, ha- having met and worked with you, um, that is super true. And uh, <laughs> I just want to—I just want to ask, why did you choose Tank Girl? Jeez, I think because it, Tank Girl is just so much fun. <laughs> so much of science fiction is this kind of really negative outlook about the future or about the way society is headed, and Tank Girl certainly is as well. Um, it is a Mad Max-style post-apocalyptic wasteland, but there's so much humor in it, um, and I think it's. It really says a lot about a director if they can take that kind of situation and make it something to laugh about and something to think about. Hey, what time is it? I don't want to miss Baywatch. It is really fun. I mean, I talk I, a lot of the sci-fi we look at is is really negative about the future. That's something that bothers me, and this one is pretty negative about the future, but <laughs> in such a way that like Tank Girl's character makes it impossible to take it seriously because she doesn't take anything seriously. So everything through her lens is inevitably drawn into this fantasy of, I don't know how to say it. It's just bizarre, right? The world of the bizarre, like that's her. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It's like the world, the world doesn't make sense. So why should our protagonist? And Hmm. Um, when did you watch it the first time? Um, Probably about four or five years ago, I was hanging out with a friend and um, I had found a list of like cult classic movies online. Um, some of them were like uh, horror films like Ginger Snap um, or I think it's Death by Numbers. And I'd heard about this film and I saw that it was um, based on a comic uh, created by the the illustrator of like the gorillas mm-hmm. music videos mm-hmm. uh, i think it was jamie hewlett mm-hmm. uh, i'm a big fan of the gorillas and a big fan of uh those illustrations and animations so i was like okay that sounds pretty cool and then i was looking more into it and it was like oh it's a kind of like a sci-fi superhero movie um based on a comic book um and it's very pro-feminism and it's very punk and 
I don't know, that just sounded like a fun time. So me and my friends just sat down and watched it. And halfway through, we were like, is this, this is amazing, right? Like, are you, you're enjoying this too, right? This is, oh my God. I just got a gut check. Everyone is loving this, right? Yeah. Um, it actually has, like, this is the best thing is you love a redemption arc. And it is a movie that is finally getting its redemption arc, just like um, Jennifer's Body. It's not quite as much the same redemption arc, like mm-hmm. where, where a movie with feminist tones, well, I guess like it's supremely feminist, is finally getting um, like accepted. Um, but yeah, this is kind of the anti-Marvel movie in every way, right? Like, it is. It's the exact yeah. opposite. <laughs> it, it does feel that way. I... <sighs> Can I just take a minute to talk about like the tank part of Tank Girl? Yes, and then I'll tell everyone what Tank Girl is all about. Okay, um, so like Tank is in the name Tank Girl, um, and I think it's I don't know. Like the first thing I noticed right away when I was looking for like symbolism in it was that like if you think about a tank, it's basically a gun on top of like a car. It's like this embodiment <laughs> of like it, it's it's phallic imagery. That is true. Yeah. Yeah, it's like this embodiment of like male symbolism. Mm-hmm. And the way our protagonist interacts with that like male symbolism, she makes it subservient. She basically makes it serve her. Hi, feeling a little inadequate. Uh, she sits on the barrel of this tank and she points in a direction and it it goes wherever she tells it to her. Um and I think that's a really cool ideal or idea for like a female protagonist because she's taking this, this stand in for like male power and male like energy and she's just making it serve her. Which is the biggest threat to patriarchy is the idea that a woman could have power over you or sub or sub or, you know, be equal to you. In this case, she's more powerful than every man in the film. Right. Like as is shown over and over. And most of it is that she's never threatened like ever. Yeah. she's always having fun at one point she's barbecuing while they're in a gunfight she's like look i'm just barbecuing like like yeah <laughs> in a way like that is the most masculine energy is to be the most aloof and the mm-hmm. most powerful but she's so fun and silly and also sexy um and, and like cool like that was the thing when i read the comics it, she's just cool like everything about tank girl drips cool but let me tell we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about it we will Sorry, certainly spoil the movie if you haven't seen tank girl Released in 1995, Tank Girl is a dystopian sci-fi musical adapted from the popular comics by Alan Martin and Jamie Hewlett, who went on to form the Gorillas with Damon Albarn, my favorite band. It was directed by Rachel Tulele. I must note, after The Matrix, this is the second episode in 49 episodes of They Came From Outer Space to discuss a movie directed by a woman. So, high five, Sky. Yeah. (laughs) Take away that data point, what you will. Uh, anyway, so Tank Girl takes place in 2033, just 11 years from now. Uh, after an asteroid hits Earth, wiping out most of the population, our star, played by Lori Petty, who plays the eponymous Tank Girl, fights a guerrilla war against a mega corporation who hoards the remaining supply of the world's potable water. It is wild, it's feminist, and iced tea is a giant kangaroo. I say we get crumpets and tea. Tasty. Crumpets and tea. All in favor of crumpets and tea, say aye. Aye. Shut up! Why don't you make yourself useful and go and choke on something? Oh, let's go, So that sums up the movie pretty much entirely, except it doesn't. There's so much that happens in this movie. Like there's there's about six times as much like action and activity as in most films. Like they just crammed so much. Um, 
if you really want to watch this movie and you don't like spoilers, you can pause or I guess turn off the radio um, and come back. But I highly recommend listening because um, spoilers can actually increase your enjoyment. So stay tuned and listen to us go through it. Um, I, I wanted to start off Skype and ask you about the production design. You might have found out that Catherine Hardwick was the production designer. Did you look into that? Uh, I, the director of Twilight was the production designer for this movie. <laughs> I'll be honest, I had no idea. I had so, no idea. This was one of the things that helped her get her start. So Catherine Hardwick, her first feature was 13, but she worked as a production designer in a lot of ways. And I think she's to thank for a lot of the reason the, reason the movie's great. Um, she brought a lot of energy. She came full force. Um, however, there were some issues on set. One of them being that they had to halt filming multiple times because chemicals were seeping into the area. Did you read about that? <laughs> they were, no, I didn't. It was an actual chemical plant, which I think like makes so much sense, right? Like, every, like there's a quote from yeah. Rachel Talele, the, the director, or Talali, where she said, "We were all definitely full on poisoned." Like that's a hard quote. From <laughs> 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 like, oh anyway. Going back to the way, the production design meeting, like the way things look, the way the tank is designed, the way the sets look, working with the costumes, I wanted to ask you about like how did you approach the production design on the pilot you just shot and like what kind of direction did you give? I'd like to say that I had the time to put in the level of effort that Tank Girl puts in because there are like jokes that like you only see on like the fifth time viewing this movie. Like at one point, uh, one of the characters to, goes to answer the door and you don't realize it's the front door because like as he walks toward it, it's a refrigerator door. Like he opens a refrigerator door and it's the front door. And there's so many small little gags in there like that where it's just so rewarding because it doesn't cost a lot to do a gag like that, but it takes creativity and it takes a team of people who, ha who are having like a ton of fun with their movie to say, you know what, let's take some time to do this silly gag that nine out of 10 people won't even notice unless they're watching it for like a second or third time. And the movie is full of that. And I would like to say that I strive to do that in my own work, but I think the reality is uh, I'm very much limited by my resources. Yeah, um, I mean, they had $25 million. That does a lot. It? That's the total oh, budget. Wow. Yeah. They had they had a, a not they had a sizable budget. Like she did a good job raising the money. Like, yeah. And when you watch the movie, you're like, there's no way they could have done it for less, considering like the fact that they have like jets and yeah. multiple, like fifteen different set pieces. But yeah, I mean that doesn't that does ascribe a different amount of time you can put into it for sure. Yeah. Um so I think at the very beginning when Margot and I were writing the script, we wrote a lot of things like that in, a lot of like visual gags and things like that. Um, but as we went through the process, a lot of that has to get cut because we realize, okay, well, we're filming in a friend's house and we can't just knock walls down or like redecorate their entire house two <laughs> days before filming. Um, so we kind of have to work within the confines of, you know, the time and like the money that is allotted to us. But we did, we did try, we kind of, um, we stuck little things in the background um, and maybe like there are some scenes where maybe two characters are having a conversation and there's a little bit of exposition going on. So to make it more exciting, we have like silly visual gags in the background. One of the, the, the jokes is that this is like a party um, and it's an anything but cups party. Have you ever 
Yeah, of, I've always wanted to go to one. Yeah, absolutely great. It was based on like a real thing that like a real party we threw a while back. Um, so one of the visual gags that's going on throughout the the episode is that characters are holding like plungers or like Fish bottles of yeah, like yep. detergent, like drinking out of detergent bottles and things. Okay. And um, one person has a pesticide sprayer full of like lime green tequila that he's actively spraying into people's mouths in like the background or even in the foreground sometimes. So we did try our best to include a lot of visual gags so that when, you know, there wasn't necessarily something interesting to listen to or, or if you were getting tired of like our mediocre writing, you could at least appreciate some, some jokes. Um, oh, no, that's, <laughs> I mean, I think that shows I think that shows a high level of sophistication where most people don't think of something till after the fact and then you're wishing you could put something in that you Mm -hmm. didn't already film so um yeah that actually takes it so uh i assume you watched it again recently like before this recording right oh yeah the tank girl yes so i finished watching it again like 30 minutes ago me too um so so like what what's some of the stuff that really stands out to you on this it sounds like fifth viewing okay so i feel like this is a comic book movie and to some degree a musical. Um, and I think those genres actually go hand in hand uh, because musicals have this kind of magical realism. Like there's a sense that the world is real, but it's also kind of like a dream. And the usual rules don't always apply in a musical. And it doesn't have to be big differences like dragons or wizards or things like that sometimes it's just this like misty cloud of unreality um because at any moment like the characters could break out into song and dance and we the audience were just expected to go along with it and i i love that about musicals uh movies they're not real so they shouldn't always have to be bound by the conventions of realness and i think once you start thinking that way you open up the door to a whole new world of fun like the real world may be like beige and restrained but in a musical a person can throw up their hands and say like sing along everybody and then suddenly everybody is dancing on the bar in their underpants (laughs) and they all know the words to the song that was written in the 20s that's the best exactly yeah and and that's so fun that's so awesome i (sighs) I don't know. Like I, I once went to like a convention where there was like a sing-along like panel at 11 PM and I showed up not knowing what to expect. But when I got there, it's a bunch of some of them sober adults. um, (laughs) And they've got like Disney karaoke on a projector screen. And this is in like a small ballroom. And so it's just a bunch of us like singing our hearts out to like Disney songs like Mulan and Lion King and grabbing each other's arm and spinning each other in circles and stuff. And it was like some of the most fun I've ever had. And I feel like I love that musicals can capture that can capture this. Like it's not real, but it it can be better than real. Why shouldn't it? Like, I don't there's, know. there's like three distinct moments where they break into song in this movie. Um, yeah. And, and there are then, other moments where they don't break into song, but they're music videos, which mm-hmm. feels very comic book. Like there's the scene where she's showering herself off with sand, mm-hmm. very much like Dune where they, you know, share <laughs> themselves with sand and air because there's no water, mm-hmm. but they film it in such a way that it's like very, 
moody and like they've got the music to support it so even though she's not singing like okay it's still kind of like a little bit of a musical number the, the movie just did derail itself for a good yeah. minute just to show like this artsy like mu- essentially a music video and it does that a and few there's times so much music in this movie um but i actually wanted to ask you about something else can i i do really want to talk about um malcolm mcdowell and water and power so Malcolm McDowell plays like the head of this evil organization, um, which is comprised of a bunch of old white men sitting around a conference room, sipping like water out of champagne flutes. And well, Malcolm McDowell quotes biblical nonsense at them. Um, So it's tons of fun and it has something to say, but also like the movie doesn't hide the message it's trying to convey. The bad guys are literally named water and power, which like just think it's the water company. It's the power company. It's the people who are trying to cut off your basic essential human rights that you need to survive. It's those people. Those are the bad guys, the guys that like think that they should be able to charge money for things that people need just to be alive. Like I love that the movie isn't subtle about it, but it is funny about it. Because they have this evil organization, but they don't treat it like it's some horrible thing that we should be afraid of. Instead, they cast Malcolm McDowell as this villain who is so over the top and so crazy that it's just like laughably scary. It's like, this is absurd. The only like the only way that like someone could be a villain who thinks that they have the right to do that is if they were certifiably crazy. And I love that the movie doesn't tell us he's crazy by having other characters talk about the fact that he is crazy. I love that it just shows us that he is crazy. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody because the way that uh, Rachel Tolele shows us is absolutely wonderful. But it just in the first 10 minutes, it's like, this is a guy who wants to take over everything you need to stay alive. He wants obedience from you. Oh, and he is absolutely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I love that. He drinks. This is not a spoiler. The opening scene, he kills a guy. It's very Dune-esque, right? Water is very uh, precious. And like someone dies, you have to collect that body's water. He kills one of his executives for failing on some, you know, whatever assignment by shoving needles into his back that collects the water from his blood. And then he holds it out in front of everyone and drinks it. Like, uh, and you're watching it and you're like, this guy looks familiar. <laughs> Am I right? Like, you're like yeah. this level of crazy looks so familiar. He's been, he's, this is a man who's been acting for a long time, but he was most famous for his role as Alex in A Clockwork Orange in 71. So 20 some odd years later, he's only 52 in this movie, but you know, he, he comes off a lot older. Well, and you know, um, yeah, but he, you can tell that he had so much fun working on it because his performance oh, yeah. is so good. He said that he, he's spoken favorably of his experience. He said it had the same flavor as A Clockwork Orange and praised the director and Rachel Talali, I'm just going to go say both ways every time. She said <laughs> that that was the biggest influence on her for the movie. And so the fact that she was able to get him, I think was really strong. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy that like, like he, I think he really, he makes it work. He's a good antagonist to match Lori Petty because yeah. his level of absurdity matches hers. So it's like, I won. No, say I won. Like, it's just so, it's fun. It, yeah, you're absolutely right. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be subtle as long as it's funny. Because it's the question really is like, we yes, we pay for water. How long until we pay for air? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the movie was very clever about 
the way it got some things through the sensors. Like, uh, there is, it's not super in your face, but there's totally drug use in this in this movie, and it's really funny. Like at one point, uh, the protagonists are kidnapped by some incompetent, well-meaning people who like uh, they're trying to like use truth serum on them, but like the truth is like nitrous. It's like laughing gas. So these characters are just like doing like facefuls of like laughing gas and giggling and things like that. And there's so many little things where while you're watching this movie, you're like, I can't believe they got that through. Like, I can't believe nobody was like, nope, this is not allowed in a movie that is going to be like, like there's so many jokes like that. We're like, wait a minute. Did they really just do that? Like, there's so much of that. You read that like a lot of, so here's my guess on that. A lot of the production, Rachel Talali said it was a war. Like, oh, I she believe had, it. She had a three-hour cut. So, like, what we're seeing is the the most palatable jokes. <laughs> like, what we're seeing is like we're not seeing all the other stuff. I'm sure you read about the five thousand dollar prosthetic. Uh, prosthetic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I cackled. I've never laughed that hard doing research for any of these films. I've never laughed <laughs> so hard. Like it was like this like scream. There's a five thousand dollar prosthetic. I think the quote was that like. Jamie Hewlett was like, it was immaculate. <laughs> that was <laughs> You'll have to do your own research on IMDb for that, kids. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about censors. But first, I want to remind you, you're listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Cameron Kitt, talking to Sky King about Tank Girl. Come on. Say it. Say it. Just say it. I want I won. No! No! Say I won! I won! Uh, so I I just can't... Something I, I kept thinking about watching it was characterization. And like obviously this movie benefited a lot from having a character that was already really fleshed out with a lot of episodes of a comic that had been written that were, you know, had the benefit of a lot of years of work. Um, but like, how do you create a character like Tank Girl? Like, there's never been a character like Tank Girl, somebody who has so much swag and so many good zingers and seems to, like, go through life like it is a dream, like, and thus makes the movie into kind of a dream of, I guess my question is, you know, in your writing, how, what's your process, Guy, for character development? Well, this is, like, a horrible thing to say, but to be honest, I think I steal a lot of it. Um, I don't go out and just, like, steal an entire character. But um, have you ever watched the show Community? There's a, a point where oh, yeah. one of the characters is breaking down another character. And he's like, you're 40% Zach Braff, 15% so-and-so from Mad Men, like 20% this character, and like 10% this character. Okay. And I, I, I feel like that's often how I create characters is I like look at friends and I'm like, okay, uh, I'm going to take your insecurity about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to take um, this character from this other movie I love. And like, eventually I've taken so much stuff that I've created a character that is not recognizably any other character, but is not wholly original because it's really hard to just create something from nothing. I, you th- you I have to take, I don't think anyone does it. I don't think anyone does it from nothing. Like I think what you described is the only method that exists, whether you acknowledge no. it or not is a different story. Like I would love to see if you had like graphs for each of your characters where it's like, 
13% Batman or whatever. For me, I started making, all right, let's make one for Tank Girl. For me, she's like 14% Gwen Stefani from No Doubt. Yes. Um, five, I don't know, maybe like 15% Mad Max. And then, and then I think the rest of it is actually just Lori Petty because yeah. everybody was like, when we were casting it, we were like, oh, let's get someone who actually has mental illness, but in a fun way. They were like, Lori yeah. Petty, when she read the script, said, I kept laughing because I sat saying, this is me, I'm Tank Girl. So like, <laughs> I think Lori Petty just like filled in the gaps with herself, you know, which is delightful because it reads, that's like the best kind of acting is when someone's just being them. Mm-hmm. That's why I think her acting is so good. Like the, there's an opening scene where she kills a man with her thighs and all these other guys crowd around her and she goes, what? Like, oh yeah. Like where he was, yeah. Being like a creepy predator. And then she kills him and they're all like, ha. Ah, and she's like, what did you guys expect? Like, like y'all knew what? that I was going to do this. You warned him. He was just an idiot. Like she's he like, walked right into it. She's pure gold. Like you just, I just can't think of anyone. I, I feel like coming back to this idea of Marvel, I feel like Marvel wishes they could create something like this, but all their characters feel like 50% sawdust in the movies. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, there's just a lot that goes into her, but I've also just never seen a character that doesn't take anyone seriously. Um, this like aloof quality that is so like, exciting. But yeah, I like your idea of like just pulling from everyone else. Um, I've tried to go through the do the archetype thing. Have you ever tried to do that? Sometimes that helps me. Y- yes, I spent a, like a whole year of college, um, <laughs> like watching movies by like the Coen brothers, because apparently I, th- I think if I understand correctly, they do like some archetypal stuff um, and they take inspiration from other works, but it seemed like such a great idea, but I was never able to do it myself. <laughs> like, I don't think I have like the, the literary brain to like analyze something and be like, yes, this is, of course, this is like the clown in the straight man. Um, like I, I I, I just don't think I have any any luck with that myself. I don't think there's a wrong way to do it, though. Mm-hmm. So as long as it feels, as long as there's something about it that feels true. Like, this is a movie that's so fantastical that nothing feels true, and yet her character feels honest. Mm-hmm. Like, as if she really is having fun all the time. Um, like, there is a scene that, like, completely confuses me. She's going to save a girl that is, like, her proto-daughter sister from a madam, and she spends, like, I guess an hour just trying on clothes <laughs> before she gets to saving. Like, I was just like, oh, okay. Her priorities are to have fun, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think we could all learn something from that, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I love, I, I honestly, I have never noticed this before, but this time I paused it to write down a thought I had. Um, and I looked up and I realized I had paused it on a close up of, of her face. And uh, in the previous scene, when she's trying on things, they are like, this is a piercing gun. Uh, you'll want to pierce your ears. But in the scene I paused on, it's after that, where she's just walked into the main area. And you can see that she has pierced like her left ear like eight or nine times. And there's just like blood pouring from her ear. <laughs> <laughs> she likes pain. She says yeah. <laughs> um, So like, you know, watching this movie now, it's coming up on, it's like 25 years. Uh-huh. It'd be like 27 years old. Um, thinking about like the landscape of trying to get funding for this movie 30 years ago, I'm still so amazed that the director was able to do it. You know, she had, she had directed the fourth installment of Nightmare on Elm Street because she had risen through the ranks at New Line. She has a math degree from Yale. And after graduating from Yale with a math degree, she decided to be a PA on John Waters' movie, 
I don't remember which one, but like that's what pulled her into the film world. So John Waters was actually her influence. And I think that comes through in this movie, right? There's like a John Waters element of, of like not taking life seriously. Um, yes. <laughs> so I want to read you a section of, from an interview. She said, um, so having acquired the rights, Talali began pitching the project to studios and production companies, a quest which seems worthy of a movie in its own right. The first pitch was with James Cameron's company. She says, I was passionately talking. And at the end of it, the executive looked at me and just said, we already have a film with a female lead. What do you say to that, right? I went to <laughs> my car and I called my agent and I said, I can't do this. I can't do this. If this is what the response is going to be, I just can't do this. Wow. Oh, wow. Are we, are we, are we anywhere? Are we past that yet or not? Like, are we still there? I, I would don't... say the needle has moved very little. Like we are making more movies with female protagonists, but I think a lot of that might be, I don't think it's being done the way it should be. For example, um, Hunger Games. Um, I don't think that movie was directed by a woman. That's right. It's uh, a story. I don't know. I, do I, really, like, I really like that movie though, actually. I do. I know. I think the movie does some things very well, but, but uh, the reason I brought it up is because I remember listening to a, an interview with a really fantastic female director, but she was talking about how before the movie was even get, in talks to get made she was going to like major studios and being like you are going to make this movie it's only a matter of time and when you do i want to be involved like i want to be the director i have like read the book i have like tons of notes i've done all this work to make this movie a reality and if i'm recalling your interview correctly as soon as they started looking for people they shut her out like immediately they're like no we're gonna go with a man to direct Gary Ross. It. yeah he understands this better mm-hmm. this is the yeah. problem problem with the studio is the studio system is you have to have a lot of existing it's it's a shutout system because you have uh, chicken and the egg you have to have a lot of existing work on your roster and you can't get that work if you're in a patriarchal system that won't give it to you in the first place so you can't you can't get in like we like give all these like big hand claps to chloe zhao for directing nomadland and then finally being able to be given a marvel movie and it's like we are not ready to clap yet. We have so much catching up to, to do in terms of representation. Like it's not time to relax and rest on your laurels. Um, like there was a period of time five years ago where there were less women working in film than there was in the 90s. So like mm-hmm. there was a period of time where it got even harder to, to justify. And then you look at movies like the 355. Have you seen trailers for this? Mm-hmm. It's just like it's just like the studio saying, well, we got to fill our like female empowerment movie quota. And it feels like it's like created by no one, like written by a robot kind of thing. Like, yes. And I'm like working on a whole video essay about this, but like, this is the opposite of that. Like there's a difference when you're genuinely telling a story that is empowering to women. And when you're doing it to fill in a box or check a box. And I, now that you've said it, I think hunger games was missing a little something. Now, obviously you can't have every movie that's like a main character be matched by the director. That's unrealistic, right? Like you can't expect sure. every movie to have that. But the, the fact that they shut the woman out after bringing it to them is uh, not surprising. Yeah. Uh, I just, there, there are so many talented women working in film. You can't tell me that there was none who were qualified. Like I... I know that you do have to have a lot of stuff on your your roster, so to speak, before like they're willing to consider you. But I don't feel like that's always the case. Like with uh, Harry Potter, like what did Alfonso Cuaron or Cuaron directed before he did Harry Potter? And it was very successful. 
Wait, no, I thought he had just done, uh, at that point, he had just directed um, Mama Tu Tambien. No, he also did A Little Princess, and then they said, you can all, oh, you can work with children. We'll have you do this one. So, no, you're right. But, like, even he had to get up to Sure, speed. sure. So, what's really interesting is this movie has not-so-great ratings on IMDb, I think, in part because it doesn't please every male audience viewer, and that's most of the people on IMDb. Um, <laughs> but, like, the fact that when a woman was directing it in the 90s, she faced what I would expect was an inordinate amount of criticism compared to her male compatriots in terms of how much pushback she got from the studio and how much they cut. And you can feel that in the final cut. Like, I don't know how much we have to pay for the director's cut of this movie, but uh, we should start an, like a GoFundMe Indiegogo for this, like to just yes. see like what her cut actually was. Cause I'm sure she was given a lot more of a hard time because of being a woman. No question. So you've, you've, you've done all this research. What, successful movies has she done since oh so it's really interesting when you read her bio on the bio that was written by her management company it doesn't even mention tank girl and i felt like that was such an obvious miss like they're like talking about oh oh, well her first movie was freddy's dead the fourth installment of friday the 13th and she's mostly done tv she's done you know episodes of sabrina and sherlock um and stuff but like She's had a very successful TV directing career, which is, if we're being honest, where the money is. Um, but like, as far as like big budget films, I don't think that she's done much since Tank Girl. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that was my understanding was that like after this, she never really got another big budget project, which may have been her choice. Um, mm-hmm. She might have realized that she liked working in TV more, but I think it's really sad because Tank Girl's so good. And I wish there was more stuff that she had done like that. Yeah, we can only hope and, and like try to make the change by, by making more work. The, the thing that has given me hope is that like for the past, I don't know, 15 years, Sundance is majority women of color and people of color and women like versus white male. Like, so like the indie set has always done a great job. The question is, when will it be worth the money to put in? Because mm-hmm. when the money is put in, it's almost like it's designed to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, like the work... The work that we talk about on this podcast are are always the movies that somehow manage to have the the flavor of the director in it and that wasn't whitewashed to death. And like those are the movies that stand out and pass the test of time. Um, There's like a whole section about all the scenes that were cut and how mad they were about it. But nonetheless, even with all that, it's still really fun. Um, I want to talk about Naomi Watts. Can we talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I know very little about actors. That's that's my... So this was basically her first movie. Like she was not well known before this movie. She was so broke that she, so she was blonde and they were concerned about that. Like we know that Naomi Watts is blonde and her, her manager paid to get her hair darkened for this like tryout. And they picked her because she did such a good job. She is such a good actress that like, she does such a good job as jet girl. She's kind of the foil to tank girl. She's a little bit more shy and comes out of her shell because of her. Um, but like the fact that like she put everything on the line for this movie, I thought was really cool. And I just love her performance. Um, also Joan Cusack is sub girl and gets cut completely. Um, so like there's this whole great like girl band vibe that like makes me really excited. Speaking of girl bands, did you know about the Spice Girls thing related to this movie? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. This is like, I'm, I went really deep. So Rachel Talali Talele tells everyone that she's responsible for the Spice Girls because they the MGM studio held lots of um, open tryouts for the main character of, of Tank Girl, even though they knew they were already casting. 
mm-hmm. and one of them was in London. So it was a way to promote publicity for the movie, which I think is evil and genius, to be honest. Yeah. And uh, three of the members of the Spice Girls met while waiting in line for that. Um, it was like Emma, Ginger, so Ginger Baby, and I think Posh were the ones that met while they were waiting in line to be in this movie none of them none of them got cast but like isn't that a great little thing <laughs> yeah that's crazy <laughs> oh my god and so after this movie um didn't it it didn't do well and wasn't she thinking of hanging things up um one of the, i just i don't remember which of the the actors it was but either tank girl or jet girl one of them basically said like after that did bad i was thinking like I might not want to do any more of this. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I know Lori Petty has kind of like held the standard of it since, but you know, it didn't. It didn't make nearly as much money. It was technically a flop at the at the box office. Um, I don't know if it would flop now. Like they're still auctioning the rights to make another one. Um, but yeah, brutal. Absolutely. It's kind of everyone's worst nightmare, right? If you're a filmmaker, your worst nightmare is that like you would get, you'd finally get your dream and then somehow it would be subverted into mm-hmm. something that you didn't want. I know that Jamie Hewlett and uh, Alan, Martin Allen were pretty critical of it. <laughs> they weren't really happy with the way it was going. Um, to be fair, production was hard. It was uh, 110 degrees in the Arizona desert. It's filthy. You can't breathe. This is again from the interview. Every ripper has two people with radio controls to control the ears and the facial expressions and somebody has to run their tail. So if you have eight rippers, 24 people showed up in the room and you're like, there's no room for you guys. And these guys are scorching. They're sweating like hell. Ice-T was hilarious. I so adore him. Everyone's like, Ice, you never complain. You never, ever complain. And he just goes, this is better than prison. Like, just so you know, making a film is not always fun. Like, it, it's, it's hard. So, Sky, with this pilot that you just shot, what was that, what was that, like, hardest thing that you had to overcome on the shoot? Um, I think the first time we filmed, I, I didn't, I didn't start out wanting to do directing. When I went to school, I studied editing. Um, and I really wanted to, to make stuff after that. But if you want to edit stuff, you have to have footage. So I kind of like had to, you know, write and direct if I wanted to have something to edit. But I'm not super great as a director. I understand the importance of getting people fired up and like feeling excited about it and that sort of thing. But when you're in a room full of your friends who have no idea how to use the equipment that you've spent the last several years years saving up to buy and they're all just looking at you like what do I do it's kind of it's a lot um and the first time I was filming um Margot and I are both kind of co-directors but her strength is a lot more in art direction um whereas my strength is a lot more in technical direction like setting up lights and things like that and the first time we filmed, I very much wanted her to do like half of the telling people what to do because that's that's a scary job being the one that says like, you do this, you do that. But she just wasn't really prepared to do that because she doesn't really have the technical understanding of how to set up equipment. And when you've got a room full of people who need to set up all the scenes, that's really a big thing. So I was kind of like asking her like, all right, I will go take this team and do this and you take this team and do that. And she 
couldn't really do that. And it was kind of unfair of me to put that responsibility on her. Um, and I think towards the end of like the first weekend of shooting, I was like in the garage alone, like, all right, don't cry. But like, yeah, this is no, really the answer hard. answer is cry. I cried. <laughs> I cried, I think twice, maybe three times on the first day of shooting of my film. Two of them were happy tears and one was like, I'm so frustrated. I don't know what to do. And it was very helpful. One in like forcing people to do what you want. Cause if you're crying, then they kind of will start doing what you want. <laughs> yeah. And two in that, like, if you hold it in, it's only going to come out in a worse way. But like, that's the truth. Any film that's your fashion project, there is that crying moment on state on set where you're just like too many things are going wrong. This thing broke or we don't have enough this or batteries. There's always something massive that goes wrong. And that's true. Even of these big budget movies, you know, yeah. um, Apparently they didn't shoot like a bunch of crucial scenes and so it had to be animated. It was just a hot mess. And and you don't think about that when you're watching it because it does still come across as really fun, right? Like yeah. things can be saved in the edit. So interesting that you bring up editing. What do you think of the editing from this movie? Like what, t- give me like your editor's take. <sighs> so do you know Ang Lee's like Hulk movie? Yes. So he... He very like he tried very hard to take the comic book aesthetic and kind of stick it on top of a movie. And the way he did that was to just cut up the the screen into comic book panel shapes. And it was a nice idea, but I think he misunderstood translating comic to movie. I think this movie perfectly understands how to adapt the comic book feel into the filmmaking format. There are scenes where there's like a montage where Tank Girl's assembling her tank and she like throws herself back into her chair and it shows that same scene like three, like it shows it like in quick succession three times in a row. It's like, it's got that frenetic energy, those like rapid cuts that aren't just to, you know, hide the fact that like they aren't doing things. Instead, the cuts are like, they serve a greater purpose and to make the scenes feel like frantic and like an action scene. Um, and I really liked all the ways they intercut with the actual illustrations from Jamie Hewlett constantly mm-hmm. and the way that the camera moved and they zoomed and panned. So like whenever there's a shot of any of the actual illustrations, it's always whizzing around and swirling and moving and, and zipping back and forth. And that makes it feel kind of fun. And they would do these like intercuts before to constantly remind you of what the comic looked like. And I feel like yeah. that just kept giving it like bonus points every time that showed up. It's like, it's yeah, like, like when they're doing establishing shots at the beginning of like the house, it's an establishing shot, but it's like an establishing shot drawn by a comic book artist. It's not like the real building. It's like the comic version of the building. And they just kind of do that for fun. And then there are these wonderful moments where like the protagonist gets knocked unconscious, right? And a wily e. Coyote style like speech bubble just appears that says like, this is me unconscious, mm-hmm. which is inherently absurd. If you're unconscious, mm-hmm. you can't be telling us that you're unconscious, but it's a comic book. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, I'm letting you guys know this, the screen is black right now because I am not awake for it. And I am the the eyes through which you see this world. And there's like so many fun little things like that where like, I don't know how much of that they came up with in the editing room, but, or how much they planned ahead of time. But, I think that's the mark of a great editor that you can find comedy in a transition from like conscious to unconscious to the next scene. Like that's really cool. I can't imagine this was easy to edit. Um, no. 
especially if like you keep taking it to the studio and the studio keeps saying like nope can't do that nope so you're trying to cobble together something and and use you know wire but like the way you're absolutely right like that's something that really stood out to me is like the way that they intercut it to show that this is from a comic actually paid homage to the comic whether or not you know alan martin and jb hewlett like understand that like i think it pays as good an homage to the actual content and is as realistic a depiction of what the comic is as you could ask every other comic book adaptation adds this like 100 level of seriousness in this day and age at least in the past decade like ever since x-men when we had like a knight like an actual knight playing the villain things changed you know what i mean like like mm-hmm. the quality of the filmmaking changed and this movie says no i'm gonna make it exactly like the comic and it it does feel that way so you're listening to they came from outer space here on wrir i'm cameron kitt i'm your host and i'm here with sky king talking about tank girl from 1995 lori petty did i hurt you yet ice tea turn this boat around you're gonna get us off kill and malcolm mcdowell just how many of my men did you kill United Artists Pictures presents. Just say, I won. I won. Tank Girl. What's it like knowing you're about to die? You killed me! Okay, so stunts. Um, the action in this movie is insane. It's so underrated. Like, there's so much action, so many explosions, so much fight, so much throw, jump, uh, kapow. Lori Petty in a uh, 2020 Ask Me Anything Twitter day was asked about the stunts and said on Twitter, I jumped off the top of that semi in real life, all caps, because no one told me it was meant to move and I thought we were all going to die. The stunt guy just said, good roll, and we kept working, LOL. (laughs) 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 Oh, man. So thoughts? <laughs> I think that's amazing that they were still having so much fun that like they weren't totally pulled out of it. Like I could have died. Why are you not giving me clear direction? I think that says a whole lot about the people who are working on that film that they were just like, oh, snap, somebody should have told you. All right. Anyway, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> like. I took I took mental notes from that. Like when an actor gets really upset, just say "good roll," like "good roll," <laughs> like "good roll." No, don't rush over. Um, so yeah, did you have any? Did you have to do any stunts in the in the TV pilot? Uh, yes, um, less less in this one. We did more in a previous video, but we went to Goodwill and bought like a a tiny little mattress. And one of our friends, who is a hockey player, um. Anytime somebody had to fall, he would just do the fall for them. Um, And we did it onto a mattress. And we were very lucky because I was very nervous about shooting a lot of those scenes. Because when you see behind the scenes footage of people doing stunts like that for real, um, they are very cautious. They take every precaution. And for us, we were like, hey, I need you to fall safely onto this mattress. Can you do that without hurting yourself? You say you can. I'm trusting you. Like, we don't please, have insurance. <laughs> yeah, like, please don't get hurt. Like, don't do anything. Like, it's th- th- this is not something that, like, it's not worth it. Don't do anything crazy. 
Um, but yeah, that's, that's like, kind of how it went for us was just like cross our fingers and trust the people who were doing the stunts to not yeah. hurt themselves. Well, we had one scene. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Keep going. We had one scene where um, we wanted to have a character um, on the roof of the house. And originally the way it was going to work was they were on the roof in front of an asphalt driveway, like 10 feet off the ground at least. Well, it was probably closer to 15. And like, I was like, okay, so what we can do is we can rig up some some webbing, make it very brightly covered, colored so that I can go in and post and like edit it out. That way we can like put a harness on you and keep it, whatever. And then we actually got there and it's that we're filming the scene at night. And I took one look at the roof and I was like, nope, <laughs> nope. <laughs> so we basically walked around to the back of the house and realized like, oh, the other side of the house, the roof is about a foot and a half off the ground. <laughs> let's just film it on this side of the house and then I'll fix it in post. Like, mm-hmm. let's let's not do anything stupid. We had high ambitions coming into this, but let's be realistic when we're actually filming it. We're not professionals and we need to make sure everyone's safe, so... Well, I'm glad you did. Were you able to fix it in post? Yeah, uh, for the most part. Uh, it's one of those things where uh, you won't notice it unless I tell you, like, can you, like, all right, if you look closely, you can see the overlay. This is two shots composited. And as soon as I tell you, you won't be able to unsee it. But the first time you're watching it, like, everyone's like, I didn't see it. I, I, it looked totally real. And I was like, yes, that's. That's like the best feeling an editor can get right yeah you you're that's what movie magic is you're cobbling together things that are fake like in any of these scenes if you panned 180 degrees off you would see the crew and it would Mm -hmm. all not work um so so in you know summarizing here this movie is so wild and so delightful and just brought so much good energy um what can we take away from this movie like what can this movie teach us about making a low budget sci-fi movie work I would say like the lessons that I kind of feel like I should embody after seeing this movie is that you can't, oh, can't swear on the radio. You can't do it halfway. Like if you want to do it, you have to, you got to go for it, right? You got to do crazy off the wall stunts and makeup that, looks absolutely horrible by today's standards and be totally unafraid and just know that like yes a lot of people will think this is goofy or stupid but some people will probably really appreciate it because they will like look at it and be like god dang the people who made this film were having so much fun and i'm having fun just watching it and knowing that they were having fun because it's seeping into every aspect of everything they're doing um you can just feel it so that's that'd be my takeaway is just make sure that you're loving what you're making so much that everyone who's watching knows, I guess. Mm. Yeah. I couldn't say it better myself. This movie goes 150%. Um, and while it is January, if you have a notes app on your phone and you keep a list of running Halloween costume ideas like I do, you can add Tank Girl and come back to it later. It's one of the best Halloween costumes. And you can always kind of do it with very little available to you. Um, she's the embodiment of cool. Read the comics. Go watch the movie. Get inspired by Rebecca. I forgot that was her name. They keep using that a lot. Um, okay. What, what You did say something to me about this superhero movie. That One of the things that really stood out to you is this line that she delivers at the end. 
Can you talk about that? Oh, uh, yeah. There's a, a scene which you see it in a lot of superhero movies where the protagonist is facing off with the villain and the villain is holding someone that the protagonist loves. And they say like, all right, you have to capitulate or else I will hurt this person or do something bad to this person you love. And as a viewer, it always feels kind of silly because it's like, okay, well, if you capitulate, he can st- he still has the power to hurt that person. It's just that now you have condemned everyone else that you might have otherwise saved. And Tank Girl has that scene. Um, but she reacts very differently. He says, like, ah, like, you got to, like, give in to me. Uh, like, if you, if you give in to me, I'll let her live, basically. And Tank Girl says, I'd rather her die than live as your slave. Which I thought was so cool. It's like, yeah. Well, that's the other option, is either you save a bunch of people and someone you care about, something bad happens to them, or all those people suffer and then that person gets to live as the bad guy's like slave. Like, what? The choice seems obvious, but so few movies make that choice, and I think it's really cool that Tank Girl does. Because I've never every movie, almost every movie, both the protagonist and their loved one live while the bad guy gets thwarted right like almost always no matter what and guess what that does happen even though she's honest about her reaction right like she still saves the girl and and gets bad guy sorry spoiler alert but you know (laughs) just um... in time cameron (laughs) (laughs) i am a fan of the retroactive spoiler alerts (laughs) 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 oh man uh so sky um this has been awesome uh in in summary a uh, couple questions. One, why should we watch Tank Girl right now? And then tell us a little bit about where we can find you and your work. Um, I guess I would say that you should watch Tank Girl just because you'll really enjoy yourself watching it, and you'll wake, you'll really enjoy the the way this movie makes you feel. And if you're watching it with friends, I think it's the kind of movie that you'll all be laughing like crazy people at. It's it's really best enjoyed with friends because the whole time you're going to be watching, you're going to be like, oh, my God, is that hideous looking kangaroo iced tea? <laughs> like, oh, my God. Four hours for them to get into that makeup every day. Like, <laughs> There's so many moments like that where you're just like, I can't believe that this movie is doing this. And you'll like turn to your friends and be like, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this right now? It's so true. It's totally best enjoyed with friends. It's like an ice cream cake. It's amazing, but it's better shared with others yeah right yeah oh that's so funny all right yeah so where can we find more about you um well i guess if you want to watch some of my silly little youtube videos you can go to youtube.com slash furry club um a lot of my stuff lives on youtube and my next uh the pilot for my show will be on there in a few months oh that's awesome yeah and hopefully you'll be starting a patreon soon so if we want to support you and your work we can go look that up and find it maybe you'll have the link to it on your youtube um sky thank you so much for coming on and talking about tank girl absolutely it's been my pleasure thanks cameron all right you've been listening to they came from outer space here on wirlp 97.3 fm richmond indie radio there's a water shortage There's your water.